0: We had been studying, of course, Igorot Harambam, Bellum's letters, specifically a letter to Ahmed Lunel. We finished that letter. We spoke about the city of Provence. We spoke about all that Provence was intellectually, historically. It was a pivotal place. Oh, the one that I just thought Okay. It was a pivotal place in that it redirected learning. Whereas learning went from the cultural center of the Ashkenazim, which emphasized Talmudism and Halakha and practice. I have an idea. 13th century and before. Whereas that happened, the Sfaradim actually had a whole different educational, cultural issue over here, where they're emphasizing philosophy. Whereas they would say Haramba would say not working this. Where they would say Harambam would say that a halachic practice without the vitalization of theological conceptions, of understanding who God is, is empty and desiccated, dried up. You cannot survive as a Jew. Here you have two extreme schools of thought. What was the rabbinic, rabbinic curriculum like in those days? Well, again, the Ashkenazim are going to do, as today as well, emphasize Talmudism, legalism, law. So, the Ashkenazim are going to emphasize, in addition to that, with that, a much broader approach where they would want you to understand philosophically who God is. The difference would be in how you say Shema, for example. If you say Shema, is Hashem HaShem those five words, in such a simple manner, Okay, then you've come from one school of 30, you say you read with the Shema, fine. Teach your children that issue. But let's say, on the other hand, you understand the depths of God's unity, uniqueness, aloneness. Not yet, not yet, that's the wrong page. give be the right page. I didn't make so many copies. You guys are multiplying. I'm sorry, I don't have an extra page of that. But I'll, I'll make one for you. So, here you have a whole different philosophical approach. The Sfaradim, Spanish Jews, emphasized philosophy. The Ashkenazim emphasized Talmudism. The Rambam, of course, was of the Spanish school. Andalusia, Cordoba, where he came from. This whole entire thrust, as expressed, for example, by Ibn Abram Ibn philosophy. philosophy. Along with, of course, obviously, a practice. Ashkenazim in northern France. Rashi had no philosophical connections whatsoever. Provence was that city in between that is attempting to merge both worlds somehow. All of a sudden they discover philosophy and they raise questions. What is this philosophical orientation that you have? Where does it come from? Where is it going? What does it mean? They're challenging Haram bam, raising issues on Sifat on the Book of Halakha, this is a new creation. My analogy has always been the last two or three months that we've studied this has been is that Borough Park kid who all of a sudden wakes up and ends, finds himself at Shiva University and always had these inclinations and says, wow, this is a sto- an extraordinary story over here. I could study Torah and Talmud and Halakhara and everything else, but I could also study philosophy and I could study physics and chemistry and metaphysics and I see this as Shil Perfect blending between both worlds. So, so what would say? Harvey and I would say that. Yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. So, this radical innovation is not going to be found in Hyde in Berlin, it's not going to be found in Lakewood or in Tells or in Baltimore. This is a YU plot which is fairly unique, although unique in America. Remember, it goes back to Harambam, goes back to Provence, goes back to those earlier years where there was a need for it, a need to simply have a merging of these two worlds. So, Ahmed Lunel wrote to Rambam from Provence, we love what you're doing, but we have challenges, we have questions, we don't accept it so fully yet. And they raise all kinds of issues which we read about. What we are pursuing now, is one particular statement in this letter to Ahmed Lunel, which we read, where the Rambam makes this very striking statement, that Torah is the love of my youth. From the time I was a youngster, I studied Torah. Fantastic. However, however, something happened over here. What's the however? This is a. You don't have this one. This I just did a couple of episodes. I'm just reviewing it quickly. But however, he says, there were foreign women. Now, of course, anybody that knows Tanakh well by heart would, of course, immediately think of. Shlomo Amelech, Belachim Aleph, Pericud Aleph, where Shlomo Amelech is castigated by the Tanakh for having Nashim nochriyot. This comes to mind. Look at the context. Ram does not write idly. So the context over here is that Shlomo Amelech blew the call by virtue of having married all of these foreign women. Nashim Mukhriot became her rivals. Who's he talking about over here? What are the Nashim nochriyot the Rambam is referring to? That's a major, major question. Right. We read this issue. And it goes on. Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Phoenicians, Hittites. Who are these women? Who are these studies that he's doing? What's he talking about? Torah I was the love of my life, love of my youth. All of a sudden there came in these foreign women or foreign pursuits of knowledge, perhaps, that have stolen time and God knows that originally I only really got involved with these foreign women for a lot to be as bakers, as as cooks as people like that because I wanted to show to the other nations where is that from? that from? that's from? is there let me this there Lord now, look how negative the context is. He wants to show her great beauty. Who's the he over here? Ahash he wants to show the great beauty of his wife, to all the foreign ministers and officials. Therefore, the time that I gave to Torah was lessened. Because my heart was divided to many, many, I was fragmented in all kinds of other pursuits of knowledge. So now he's, I think, pretty clearly saying to us that his foreign women were mine Am I misreading this? Was what he said. He's saying, now my heart is fragmented, divided into all kinds of chokmah. And how I've tried day and night for seven, 10 years connected the kibbutz Hayburze in order to compose this work. Haybur is a reference to Mishnah Torah as opposed to the Ma'amar, which Ramah talks about in Why? Because Ma'amar is an oral stated teaching, Haybur is a written composition. Though they're both written, Ramah wanted you to always know that this has to be an oral understood composition. Why when it is oral? Because you need need to read it as if you had a teacher with you. You cannot read this on your own. And if you don't have a teacher, what do you do? You use him as your teacher. And how is he your teacher? Because he tells you how to very carefully read this. Don't read it as a hibur, as a normal written book. Read it as if I were a ma'amar. Similarly, there are those who have said, that Mavat Ketemetim, which is the last work the Rambam wrote, the last official work, as opposed to his letters, the Rambam wrote, which is the re- letter concerning resurrection, resurre- resurrection, of the dead. He wrote it in 1194, which is a commentary on Mordechai Ukim. It's also called a Ma'amar, but it's written. Why it Ma'amar Hibur. Because the very important between Ma'amar Hibur, Hibur that you and I can read any time, any day, any place. Ma'amar is a statement. The word is Lomar. Or Amirah, a statement is saying that I'm telling you. See this book as the author telling you something, which you could question, you could ask, you could clarify. Aish, right? So Ma'amad is what the Mureed al is. Aish, and Ma'amad is what Hayamatim is. Hayyamatim is So now, when I Lim Kachem, a man as great as you, yet do they will know what I've done. i brought, conceptualized, i brought together all kinds of scattered halachot. Because of Ibn HaAmin, which is what, again, we got to state about the Jewish people, and these hints and these quotations are very striking. And I have brought one from a city and two from a family. What does he mean by that? I brought a halakha from here and a halakha from there. Together. So he's collected. Conceptual, conceptualized, classified Jewish law. It was and is to this very day a monumental undertaking, unprecedented prior and never followed after. Nobody wrote a work like a Mishneh Torah. Period. It is the work of rabbinic culture of the last thousand years. And in the words of Rabbi Tversky, nobody has written a work that has to do with rabbinic literature in the last thousand years since the Raman wrote this work. Right? Rambam lived thirty five to twelve o four. Yes, that does not make reference to Mishneh Torah. In some fashion, whether it's work of exegesis, whether it's a work of Dikduk, uh, or work of language, or work of Halacha, work of Talmud, it all comes back to Mishneh Torah. You may disagree. You may argue. You may challenge, but the Rambam's work is at the focal point of Can Rabbinic literature. Can you find it? Can you find it? Can I find what? What he wanted. Can I find what what Rambam said? Yeah. Or where, where the Rambam says it? Yeah. Yeah, his introduction makes makes note of this. In the introduction, the Rama says, I am writing a work for generations. I know what I'm doing. He was one of the few authors who were self-conscious conscious of their place in history. You may know, you may think that you are a pivotal person. Not everybody does. Analogously, let's say you're a Roosevelt fighting Hitler, and you understand what the stakes are. You sense that you are now at a pivotal moment in history that you have to win or lose everything. JFK, Cuban Missile Crisis, might have felt the same way. I'm either going to make history or lose history. I'll be a hero or the goat of history. Rabbi Kandyori was saying very nicely on Yom Ha'atzmuth, which was a really beautiful program, how Rabbi Gorin was the Chief Rabbi of the Armed Forces in 1967. And at that point, he told Moshe Dayan, who was the Minister of Defense, <clears throat> you have an opportunity now to make history. If an errant bomb blows up the mosque, you will change history and you won't have any questions. That's what happens in war. Bombs blow up places. It happened in Yosef's tomb. They wrecked it. That wasn't a bomb blown up. That was intentional. But, of course you can, all the more so. If a bomb happens to go in the direction of the dome of the rock, you will change history. If you don't do it, you also change history. And Dayan, of course, refused, he was the head military officer as the minister of defense. He refuses, look, it's a holy place, I respect it, I'm going to leave it as such. And now, for the next 50 years, that has become an issue of contention. Yeah. Painfully and sadly, we've lost uh, hundreds, if not thousands of people because of it. And to add insult to injury, or assault on the wound, Arafat said six months, eight months ago, who said the Jews were here to begin with? So not only do we preserve their shrines, they deny our right to ours. Jews are never here, there's no ben over here, what are you talking about? And they have excavated and ruined thousands of years of Jewish history, snap of the finger. That's what you're dealing with over here. It's a painful reality, but that's what you're dealing with. They have no regard for it. When Jews took over the holy places, we protected every Christian shrine, every Muslim shrine, we did everything wonderful. When, they, when the Muslims, Jordanians had mavi it was a garbage dump. So, although I'm broad-minded and liberal and understanding, and I probably would have decided to let's respect their holy sites as well, history may have taught us that was a foolish move. But you have to raise it as a question, you're a man of history. Right now you have the opportunity of doing something that's going to change the currents of history. And Ayan chose not to. And we've to this very moment, we're still paying a price for that. It's a very painful reality. But again, I'm not advocating one percent person or the other. I don't know what I would have done in that situation. It's a challenging question. What do you do? Don't you don't know what the consequences would have been of that action. In what sense? What? Negative or positive? What negative? What consequences. consequences. We're already a victim of the consequences. I think we already were. I think that... So you'll say you don't know... Correct. The way. You don't know the other way either. Right. The but world could have come down on this. I don't think that would have happened in 67. In 67... I mean, and wiped them out. Uh, all support. I don't know. I'm raising it all. Insi- don't know... No, no I, I respect that. I created. absolutely, 1,000% respect that. But, 67, the whole world was different. And nobody would have questioned the Jewish right to defend itself. Nobody's going to say, if a bomb happened I have the door, what, happens, what do you want from me? What could I do? The question maybe, should we rebuild it? i we rebuild it? Give it back? That, that might have been a different question. Okay. But I think in 67, the world was a very different place. And today, again... They're challenging our right or question to it, which nobody tells the history of the world. No Muslim, nor Christian, or anybody else, that this Kotel is not a Kotel. Now our says, no, who said it's really Jewish to begin with? So we're suffering from this. Point. The point is that there are moments of history where you create history, you change its currents, and you go one way or the other. Harambam knew who he was, what he was writing, and he was right. What's 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 is what is you say? What is the saying? Torah and what? Go One minute, we'll get back to that for a second. So now I'm saying, I wrote this great work for you. Yet, our issue over here was, what does he mean by these foreign women? These, mineh Why is he saying this? Now, he's writing a letter. And as I've cautioned you from the very beginning, when you write a personal letter, it can either be very revealing, or very nuanced, or not your true feelings, because only you're reading it. Or maybe your very true feelings because only you're reading it. That one has to keep it in one's mind all the time. So that's the first point. We want to understand this line. What is follows now is a footnote to this paragraph over here, which we've seen. We have done two weeks ago, we looked at Hatema Tomasikhat Avot, where the Ramah makes a contrary to this statement, saying, Shema Shamara. Those who were here had seen it, here it is. Ramah says, i written to you a work, I will explain this work called Birkea Avot And in this particular work, I'm not going to innovate anything new. Nothing's new over here. In Nam I, I didn't make this new up. It's a uh, rather I've gathered from the words of the rabbis from the Midrashot Short, from all the Midrash and from the Talmud, and other authors, call them the Geonim, fine, and from the words of the philosophers both the early philosophers and the new philosophers. Referring, obviously, over here to the Greek philosophers, namely Plato and Aristotle, as well as to the more recent philosophers, namely Al-Farabi, Avicenna, possibly Averroes. Now, in fact, Al-Farabi had written a work on modernity, in Arabic, which I think is a work which means um, political philosophy, and we actually have the original Al-Farabi text, I mean we have the Arabic, and some sections of this are lifted word for word. Copy the whole paragraph. He tells you he's going to do that over here. I'm going to gather quotes from words of everybody. And you can see, you can see that the Rambam gathered words from Midrashim, from the Talmud, as he says, as well as words from the philosophers. Within this work of the Kabbalat of the Shemot of course Shemot eight chapters, right, comes the Rambam's very famous notion of Shviil HaZahav, the middle road in ethics, the middle road in ethics. Now, anybody that knows anything about Greek philosophy knows that Aristotle wrote a work called the Anima, which means on the soul, which talks about the middle road. So the Rambam, in fact did utilize that notion of middle road that Aristotle, a thousand years earlier, had actually introduced into the Western world's conception. But the Rambam, and this is a critically important point, was no slavish follower of anyone. Rather, the Rambam carved from pre-existing knowledge a new direction in thinking. So even the Rambam's adoption of Aristotle's The Anima, which talks about the golden mean, or golden path between two extremes in ethics, is not simply an adoption, but rather it's an adaptation. And I could show that to you, I could prove that to you, and Ramam took Aristotle but adapted it through the prism of Torah. Torah served as the carving knife, if you will, or the prism through which the Torah filtered knowledge, and it ended up this extraordinary work. Are you surprised by that? All great Jewish minds should say, oh, but many great Jewish minds have done that. You take an existing body of knowledge, you filter it through the prism of Torah, and you end up with something that's relevant, contemporary, that works for a particular Jewish society, as opposed to keeping the Jewish society community, let's say, rooted in the work that was written a thousand years ago. Example, where salvation obviously did that with existentialism, with Kantian philosophy, with Herman Cohen's philosophy, all that's out there. He said he knew it. And it's his philosophy, whatever one can call it, is obviously a filtering of all of those works. Everybody knows this. You read his work, Isha Racha, and the first page, the second footnote, you find twelve philosophers quoted from the whole range of philosophical thinking. So, Rabbi, the Rav, Rabbi Salvation, had filtered it through the through the words of Torah. That's the key. If somebody says there's knowledge in the Torah, and the knowledge of well, it, there's, there's knowledge there. you use, you need that knowledge of an non-Jewish world, and with it you build a viable contemporary philosophy of Judaism. An equivalent issue would be: is if you were to study an ethical treatise of a medieval period of time, would that work for you? Are you a medieval person? Now, truth to tell, many friends of mine are medieval people. In their attitudes, in their hashka thought, in their, in their uh, practices, of course, and all that, they are medieval people. So that's fine, it works for them. It works for them so they could read read all these works, and this would work fine. But if you are a person that's been through Freudian psychology, if you're a person that understands all the things like this, then, it may not work for you. You need a contemporary issue of ethics. For example, obviously, let's say I tell you to read Besides Shereemoy or or any of these works, and they tell you be honest in business. And we all agree to be honest in business is appropriate and right and fine. Good. That's a medieval work because so be honest in business. So you also strive for that particular level of honesty in business, and it really works. But you may come to me and say, hold on a second, that's a great ideal. And when you're buying for a tomato for two dollars from the farmer, selling it for two and a quarter, it works. I shouldn't sell it for four dollars. You know I'm the only tomato stand in town. I shouldn't gouge. I should be honest. You need tomatoes. It's important. Okay. But you're going to consider. Robert, we don't buy tomatoes for two dollars for two fifty any longer. What do we do today? We have complex monetary financial arrangements. Where? Uh, thank you. <clears throat> Amazing. Said water piers. Did you hit a rock recently? <laughs> Thank you. So in in these situations, honesty works, but the issues are so complex and so difficult that it's not the same question as buying and selling a tomato for two dollars or two and a quarter. That's a different issue than dealing with modern business issues. Honesty is still the principle, but it's not as clear. As the other one is. Variation. It's true that I'm the only one uh, that sells tomato in town, but now you can import them from 200 miles away without, and so uh, I'm no longer a monopoly. It's a different situation, different story. So I have to be honest. That goes without saying. But the nuances of business nowadays is it dishonest to one and dying the buyer? Is that dishonest? Everybody does it. You go to board games and you go to theaters and you go to restaurants. We're honest, but thousands of years, thousands of years ago nobody want and dine the buyer, the, the buyer. Nowadays it's done as a matter of course. And there's a very thin line between bribery and whining and dining. That is a thin line. So you would want a book of Jewish ethics regarding business issues to be, not simply be honest, buy a tomato for two and sell it for two and a quarter. You want a new book of Jewish ethics to incorporate situations, scenarios, multinational situations that are much more complex. Doing business in Germany is a contemporary issue. Should one buy German goods or not buy German goods? The uh, IBM was a supporter of Nazism, as the Times reported a couple of weeks ago. Should you be buying IBM computers and stuff like that or not stuff like that? These are uh, interesting ethical questions that one can raise that nobody a thousand years ago raised. So there are. Nuances. So, therefore, what I'm saying to you is that I am creating for you a philosophy of Jewish ethics in this particular work, Coach Manapid Hakim, I'm a- adopting and adapting, filtering all of their notions of the earlier Plato and Aristotle philosophies and more recent Al-Farabi, Avicenna, perhaps Averroes Av- Av- as well, and I'm going to present this to you. Now, I'm not going to tell you that I'm quoting this idea from here or this idea from there. I'm not going to tell you all that. I'm telling you right now. So, you right now, that's what I'm doing. So, assume this book has all kinds of good notes from everywhere else. Right? Good. And he says to so over here, key words. I would say these four words are the four of the most important words in the history of Jewish thinking. Without exaggerating, which is, Ushma, Haimet, Mimish, Abara. Listen to truth from whatever its source. Period. Truth is truth, it's absolute. Whether it comes from Plato and Aristotle, whether it comes from Averi Znafarabi, whether it comes from Talmud or Torah, listen to the truth. If it's true, it's absolute, you must accept it. Right. So I'm telling you truth. So I don't... That's a footnote this. It's true, accept it, period. Obviously not everybody would agree with this particular statement. Right. And Adam goes on to say, And sometimes I will bring an entire paragraph, an entire paragraph, what she did, from a book, that is famous, Bil not, in its language. Without telling you I caught it from. He's saying it to you, since I'm telling you from the very beginning that I'm copying, I'm not plagiarizing. I'm, not pl- I'm telling you that I'm copying entire paragraphs, which you did, which we have today, from other works. There's nothing wrong with this. And I'm not glorifying myself or somebody that said beside me. Because I've already admitted it. Kevad I admitted it already. But I askir. And mean, I'm not going to say he said this or that's that. It's too long. It's not what I. You don't need to know where I got this information. I'm tell you right now. I have all kinds of information all over the place. He understood the political, aspect. and I think that's true. I think that's true. He understood the political implications of what he was, what he was doing, and interestingly enough you have the same political machinations going on to this very day. A thousand years later. The word had written in the 1940s, when he wrote this first great work, the Jewish world was very open and maybe very secure, perhaps you might say. So he quoted from every place. As you could do with that, fear of retribution, of condemnation. Today it's a very different world. In 30, 40, 50 years, the world changes. So today, you don't do that any longer. It's equivalent to rabbis in the 50s and 60s and 70s to that had to have PhDs to get jobs in the Ashkenazic world. Right? Today, nobody cares any longer. In days a Rabbi's PhD meant he was broad-minded, pursued a course of discipline, he knew a whole different area besides Torah and Mitzvot. He knew philosophy, psychology, whatever it may be. Nowadays it's not necessary any longer. Nowadays to the contrary, if you have a PhD, you're negative, because we you just said enough Torah, you put in the. the 2,000 hours and getting a PhD and 2,000 less of Torah learning that you have. So you negatively in many congregations nowadays. Your you have a PhD, how much do you really know? It's a question that's raised. It's a different world. So, Rav understood the political question then, as we understand him today. And maybe Rav Sadechka would say to you the very same thing. I'm going to write an essay on the Philosophy of Halacha. I'm going to quote from many, many sources. I'm going to quote from early and later philosophers. I'm telling you who's who and what's what. If you don't read it, don't read it. But I'm telling you that's what I'm doing. In that way, he's much more likely to get his point across. In various worlds, then, if he says, "I'm quoting Kant," "I'm quoting uh, Aquinas," "I'm quoting Aristotle, Plato," okay, that's political issues that are involved over here, and the Raman lose these political issues in that paragraph. Good. So now we've done that. Now Charlie and I last week met, and we quoted from another source the impact and import of this source of Kim tells you what the Raman believed when he wrote this commentary on Avot, which is really wonderful to study in of itself is that he utilized philosophy of different sorts to expand the horizons of Torah learning. that point clear? Here he says, in this 1194 letter to Ahmed 1198, I think it was 1198, 1199, over here he says, these other foreign women snuck in. I hired them originally as bakers and cooks. They took all over my life. Meneha al Negative. Here, in the perspective of the Rambam, he's saying, hold on, you need these other sources. You need them. So now, is the Rambam going back over here? Is that what he's doing? Or is he really trying to just write a spe- specific message to Elchamelu now? That's the question. Is he writing a message only to them about something? Is he covering his tracks or something? Or is he changing his whole entire philosophy of life? Is this what you want to think about? Now we're looking at Vayeshev. You have it in front of you, 351. And with respect to Charlie, just give me one minute to review the first two, three packs that we said over here. This is towards the end of Bukhim, It's the end of a long journey that those who read Vayeshev know. And what I want to do over here is look at it in the Hebrew, in the English, and look at it in the Hebrew as well. We're not going to compare it to the Arabic unless we find a word that's really of significance. But we should see the English and the Hebrew, which I'll give you that in a minute. First, the English. This chapter that we bring now does not include additional matter, over the above was comprised of other chapters of the So there's nothing new over here. Right? Of course, it's interesting because the Raman tells us over here also, the There's nothing new in Shemaraprakim either. Not a new, new comment, this is all old stuff. Nothing new over here. It is only a kind of conclusion. At the same time explaining the worship as practiced by one who was apprehended the true realities, peculiar only to him who was after he obtained apprehension of what he is. Very difficult sentence. In the Hebrew is probably easier to understand than the English. It's only kind of conclusion. Nothing new. Explaining avodat Hashem as practiced by one who understands the true realities, peculiar only to Hashem. When you understand Hashem, your avodat Hashem is going to be different. Your prayer should be different. How you keep Shabbat should be different. That's a critically important point. If you don't understand Hashem, it's an obvious point. At all. Let's say you think Hashem is literally in heaven. So you do your avodah based. You point towards God in heaven. If you understand that God has no place, and rather rather God is every place, then your prayer is going to be different. You're not going to pray, "God help me," like this. Why not? Because God's everywhere. You cannot escape where God's presence is. every place. If you think, as a pagan would think, that Hashem, God, is only in the Beit Knesset. He's only here. So you can't shoot the pray. only here. All, somebody says, you want to pray at home, I can't pray at home, why not? Because God's not there. So if you think that, you're a pagan, right? And your Abolot Hashem will be different. You only have to shoot the prey, because God's only here. If you have a good phone hookup, maybe you could do it at home. If you have a good video system, then you could maybe do it video... You could do that kind of thing. right? Conference call, <laughs> Conference call. <laughs> They're very expensive, conference call. So that's a different issue. But here what I'm saying is that your avodat Hashem by one who has understood the true realities of Hashem. It's going to be a different kind of avodat. Your prayer of pre-understanding and post-understanding is going to differ. That should be clear. And I'm going to talk about that a little bit later on. But your avodat Hashem is going to differ once you understand what Hashem is really all about. Again, as a ten-year-old, as my ten-year-old, or my 15-year-old, or my 18-year-old, or my 22-year-old, they all have different perceptions of Hashem and who Hashem is. Obviously, the 10-year-old is that 15-year-old, is that the 18-year-old, the it's all different. And their avodah is going to differ based on their apprehension. The 10-year-old, 22-year-old are very far apart. The middle are a little closer. But one should not have the same avodah, Hashem, pre-understanding and post-understanding and the key issue over here is understanding hashem so that sense so to be clear is this is only nothing new it's only kind of conclusion The say of explaining the avodat hashem as practiced by one who has apprehended the truth of hashem after you have attained understanding of what hashem is which is a very heavy statement and it also guides him towards achieving this worship this chapter will guide you towards that new type of avodat hashem which is the purpose of man, Avodat Hashem, and makes known to him how providence watches over him in this habitation until he is brought over to the bundle of the light till he passes to the next world. So, this one pra- paragraph, which says there's nothing new over here, right, is really telling us a very powerful statement. It's telling us, it's a conclusion, A, B, it's explaining Avodat Hashem by one who has understood the truth of Hashem. That's true. Three is telling me about Hashkacha, providence, in this habitation. you are going to enter now into a palace. We're all going to enter into a palace now. Hashkacha is in that palace. What is the saying about those who live outside the palace? Is Hashkacha for them or not? You'll see. And fourth, he's saying that's Tachlit HaAdam. The purpose of a person for life is Service of Hashem, whatever that service is. Really it's contemplation of Hashem, as you'll see in a moment. Okay. Now, that's the first paragraph. It's nothing new over here. But a lot of heavy goods. I shall begin this discourse in the chapter with a parable. Why a mashal? Because the Ramah tells us in the Satamah to Murinabuhim how important a parable or a mashal is. Upon what is the Ramah basing the notion of the power and impact of parable on Torah itself, Tibin'im. Torah itself uses parables, uses Meshalim. Yehezkel, which is known as Maaseh merkava, is a parable, in some sense or some level. We had pointed out how in his introduction, which one of course should read, it's one of the classic works of Jewish learning, Graham says, are different types of parable. There's parables in Midrashim. the Everybody should have read this at one point or another in his life. Test over here. For this reason, all the sages, Chachmei Yisrael, possessing knowledge of Hashem, knowers of truth, when they aimed at teaching something of this subject matter, namely, Maaseh spoke of it only in parables. When you want to teach something that's deep, teach it that in a parable. Why? Because you, the reader, you, the listener, can absorb from the parable, from the mashah, what you need to absorb. And whatever goes over your head, this doesn't matter, it goes over your head, so you didn't get it. But only that which you need to absorb will you actually absorb. Right? So the rabbis use parables and riddles. They even, Dachmei the Israel multiplied the parables and made them different in species and in genes. They changed them around to get the point across. So it's not It's not a simple issue whatsoever. And now the Rambam tells us over here, <coughs> furthermore on the next page as well, where there are different types of parables. could understand only the external sense of it, the outside of it. And in so doing, if you only understand the external sense of it, you thought there is a fool. Because you only got the outside, external, of it. And there is nothing that we have said definition the belief. Or you can attribute it to inner meaning. You say there is an inner meaning to these parables. Of course there is inner meaning. Halom Yaakov is a parable. Right? Wherever else it is, it is also a parable that the Ramah will talk about in Moreno Vakhim as well. It's a parable. So the Torah, the Khm'ah, the Talmud used parables in order, to, in order to communicate a profound point. What do you find surprising of this next line, just parenthetically, My speech in the present truth is directed, as I've mentioned, to one has philosophized as knowledge of the true sciences. What's the key word over there? My speech. It's a ma'amar. It's a hibur. Point I made before. Raman says over here, my speech. It's a spoken word, ma'amar. It's right. I'm clear on what the differences are between chibur and ma'amar. Chibur hey, is what you got. We understand that. But speech is nuanced. It's questions. It's answers. It's reading. It's it's hearing between the lines. It's called a ma'amar. That's a chibur. Chibur is a code. It's clear. It's straightforward. It is what it is. A speech is more nuanced, is what he would say. If you want to read a, uh, I could give you some more work on this issue if you want to see. Okay, good. So, he tells us over here, if you are perplexed about the me, uh, the meaning of these issues and the parables. Again, the Mishalim. So, parables play a very strong role in the Rambam's work over here. And just furthermore, again, he talks about... Um, two types of parables, where every detail has to be explained in some of them, and sometimes parables, only the general idea is important. And he quotes from Mishle, which says that a good parable is a, it's a beautiful statement, where he tells us it's the, um, Maskiyot A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in Maskiot Kesef, in settings of silver. It's like an apple of gold, in a setting of, the outside is silver, filigree, small openings. It looks very nice from the outside and you're happy with it. It's nice, it's It's comfortable, I feel comfortable, it's very nice. But if you look closely, what do you really get to at the end of the day? The gold. It looks very closely in the apertures, in the openings. Masquerade denotes filigree traceries, where there are very small apertures with very small eyelets. The handbook of they are so-called because a glance penetrates through them. The sages accordingly said that a staying uttered with a view to two meanings. You have a, you have a statement with the rabbite, of makes. It has two meanings to it. Like an apple of gold overlaid with silver filigree work. having very and lows. Now, see how marvellously this statement describes a well-constructed parable. Now, I'm reading this to you because I want you to apply what he says over here to his parable over here. Right? <clears throat> For he says that in saying that it has two meanings, a parable has two meanings an external meaning and an internal meaning. The external meaning ought to be as beautiful as silver, while its internal meaning ought to be more beautiful than the external one, because it's really gold. Following? Yeah? The former external in comparison to the latter as gold is to silver. Its external meaning also ought to contain in it something that indicates to someone considering it what is to be found in its internal meaning. It has a hint of the internal meaning. You're not going to walk away and say, oh, it's a simple story, pass on it. You're going to realize that something silver, beautiful, valuable, precious over here externally. We don't want you to walk away from this parable. Because if I told you a parable that was so simplistic, would mean nothing. But if I tell you a parable that it's intriguing and engaging and you have some ideas to what it really means, you will accept the parable. And if it's really good, it will draw you into its gold internal core. If it's a good parable, its external meaning was contained in something that indicates someone concerning it was found as a hint of the internal. As happens in the case of an apple of gold overlaid with silver filigree work, having very small holes. We'll look at it from a distance or with imperfect attention. Is it to be an apple of silver? Oh, very nice. But when a keen-sided observer looks at it with full attention, its interior becomes him, and he knows it is of gold. The parables of the prophets, peace be on them, are similar. Question, is he including Moshe Rabbeinu over here as one of the prophets? Bless you, Ksendai. Is he including Moshe Rabbeinu over here as well? That's an interesting question that to put on the side. Let's see. Their external meaning the power of the prophets contain wisdom that is useful in many respects among which is the welfare of human societies right as is shown by the external meaning of proverbs external meaning of proverbs and of similar sayings their internal meaning of the contains wisdom that is useful that is useful for beliefs concerning what the truth as it is the real truth the real issue so let me tell you about. Prophetic parables are of two kinds. In some of these parables, each word has a meaning, or others, the parable as a whole, gets the, the whole intended meaning. So it's either a specific meaning, each word has a meaning, or all of them. Now, one more point. In such a parable, very many words are found, not every one of which adds something to the intended meaning. The server has to embellish the parable to render it more coherent. Or, I talk a lot about my parable to conceal the intended meaning. I don't want you to know that you really are are on the same page as me, what the intended meaning really is. Hence, the speech proceeds in such a way as to accord with everything acquired by the parable's external meaning. Understand this well. When Raman says understand this well, what what must you do? Understand it well. Think of it again and again. An example of a parable of the first type is, a parable of the first type, which means that every word has a meaning to it. And behold, a ladder set upon the earth. What is he talking about? Jacob's dream. Good. Bereshit. Kafchet. In this text, the word ladder indicates one subject. The word set upon the earth indicates the second subject. The words at the top of it reached the heavens, third subject. The word ascending indicates the fifth subject. The word ascending is the sixth subject. Every word is important. Every word indicates something that has to do with the mashal. And, behold, we got. I got, above it, the subject subject. Every word of this parable refers to additional subject and the subject of some words in the An example of the second kind of parable, with a general idea, and not every word is meaningful, is the following text. I a quote over here from Mishle. Right? For at the window of my house, I looked forth through the through my lattice, and I beheld among the fullest ones, I discerned the youth, a young man void of understanding, all this from Mishle. Right whole, over here, whole story. She caught him, and so on, all this. The outcome of all this is a warning against the pursuit of bodily pleasures as desires. That's a general parable, not specific, general, that's parable, back to our text. So now we're going to do a parable because I want to communicate a very important, very profound truth. And interesting, something new over here. It's We've spoken it's about the whole entire book, correct? Yet, how does it culminate? How does it conclude? All the knowledge that preceded this is with a parable. So, parabolic understanding is the essence of what the Ramah is really all about. It concludes in one of the most famous chapters in all of Jewish literature, on Eichen part in Chapter Twenty-One, which everybody should ever read once in his life. To be literally true, it gives you sense to what parables mean. So what's the parable? Right, five minutes. I say then, the ruler is in his palace, and all his subjects are partly within the city and partly outside the city. Right? Of those who are within the city, some have turned their backs upon the ruler's habitation. They turn their backs upon, the, who's the ruler over here? No. Hashem. And his palace. And their face turn the other way. Others seek to reach the ruler's habitation, turn toward it, and desire to enter it and stand before him. And Charlie pointed out last week that this hem is not capitalized, it's not referring to Hashem, it's run to a parabolic, it's turned to a relic, regular king. Not to Hashem, it's really Hashem in the internal, in the internal meaning. Externally, it's run to, to a regular ruler. But up to now, they have not yet seen the rule of the habitation. Some of those who seek to reach it, have come up to the habitation and walk around it searching for its gate. Some have enter the gate and walk back into the antechambers. Some have, of them have entered the inner court of the habitation have come up to be with the king. Internal meaning? Hashem. External meaning? King. In one and the same place with him. Namely in the ruler's habitation. But they haven't come into the inner part of the habitation, does not mean that they see the ruler or speak to him. For after they're coming into the inner part of the habitation, it is indispensable enough to have been in the palace, in the antechamber, in the inner room, and speaking to him, you must go beyond all that, make like another leap to get to bore olam, and they will and they will be in the presence of the ruler, see him from afar from there. By what's interesting about that statement? Even when you're in the same room, and you're in the presence you could still be far away. Right, the hook. Of course, what comes to mind over here is the Pasukah of Miramayahu. Miramayahu, Hashem, Mir'a, Eli." God appeared to me from afar. What does that really mean? Not geographic distance, but spiritual distance. Miramayahu was one of the greatest of the Medihim. Hashem appeared to him from afar. They will be in the residue, I see from afar nearby or hear the ruler's speech, or speak to him. What do I don't see over here? I don't hear... Oh, let's go further, we'll see what this really means. Now, here's a parable, 10-12 lines, shorter in the Hebrew, which we'll see in a few minutes, or next week, right? Simple. This is the culmination of more than and routine. The entire work over here is telling me about a parable of 10-12 lines. I shall interpret to you this parable that I have invented. So he's created this parable, correct? And I will interpret it to you. What does that mean? Why is he interpreting it to me? Because I couldn't get it on my own. the, purpose of the parable, was and the purpose would be missed, correct? I say then, those who are outside the city are human individuals who have no beliefs. They have no beliefs based on speculation, but one that accepts the authority of tradition. One of the values of tradition is what is that I have true knowledge, not because I philosophized and not because I speculated myself, but rather because I accepted it, God's presence. Bura alam. So makes the same exact point in de T'ort, right? Emrobi T'ort. Take card. What am I not? makes the same exact point. That true tradition helps the average Jew get, in quotes, to the palace. Because, let's say you're not a philosopher. You didn't study what you need to study to get to the, to the palace. You have true tradition. The Rama won't accept this, by the way. But we'll see in a moment. Because to really get there, you have to do it on your own. You have to be a philosopher. You're not happy with this. I know. You engineers don't like this stuff. I know. Yeah, you don't like it. Engineers want the uh, easy stuff. Press the button, computer turns on, and I'm there. This you've got to work hard for. So, the people who, outside the city, they're not even close to anything, are those human beings, human beings, that are Jews now, actually, who don't have true beliefs that are based on either their own speculation, or they accept there's no tradition for them, they have no Torah, they have no mis they have nothing. Such individuals are the furthest Turks found in the remote north. So that gives an interesting pedagogic technique. Raman wants you to know he's talking about, so he gives you labels. Who's the label over here? The Turks found in the remote north, or the blacks found in the remote south. I just translated because I want to be politically correct. The blacks found in the remote south. And those who resemble them from among those that are with us in these climes. So the Rambam in Egypt, in fact, found some of these people like them, the blacks in the south, or the Turks in the north, he saw them as practically barbarians. The status of those is like that of irrational animals. you are not happy with that, I'm sure. But it's true. You have no sense of God, no sense of what is not traditionally, and not speculatively. Meaning, you thought of it on your own. You have nothing. So, what do you have? <clears throat> it's a funny perception. When I was in Africa, and the, the people laughed at me. It was 1975-76. We were doing seminars for Jewish kids in Africa. Very nice programs. Counterpoint, fantastic story. We had Wonder of the summer. Had to work every single day. We went to uh, to Kruger National Park, and there there is a Zulu village. You we want to see the Zulus, literally the Zulus. Right. Look at the Zulus, and they're pagans. Their deity is called Sukolosh. He's very short. They put their beds on bricks because he can't reach you while you're sleeping. Astounding, real life paganism. I couldn't believe it. Real life paganism. And my feeling is I didn't get what role do these people play in God's world. At least a Christian is a third of the way there, somewhat. At least a Muslim is a half the way to there, to the end goal. Something. These guys aren't in the ballpark. They're in no place. I couldn't believe it. And I, we was five We have rabbis, five teachers over there. I'm saying, what will these people play? They're not like people. What are they? They're like... I know, I know, I know. So I'm saying, I just couldn't get it. They're nice people, nice human beings, but they had no clue as to anything! They were so far removed from my experience of people that are in the same ballpark, at least, playing the same game, trying to seek out God, however you understood God. Nowhere close. To me, it was like they're just... irrational animals. I mean, I didn't, this was before I read this. Yeah, this is 77, 78. <laughs> and about 10, 79, I read this about 10 times. So, yes. That's what was my feeling, These people have no clue whatsoever. It's not like over here, the blacks over here, which are good Christians and they're good people, whatever maybe may be. That's a different story. We have pagans living in the jungles of Africa. They're nice people. I mean, they're human beings. You raise the question, of they tell them I don't know. I assume they are, right? We said they are? Did I say they're yeah. they are not? They are so beings. Okay, I mean, okay, no, I, I brought you right. We were, were before not. Abraham. Rabbi, you taste. Were we all before Abraham? We were pagans? Yeah. Are they pagans? Yeah, they were pagans. Okay. Okay, you're right. Okay, so it's in the middle of but I, but I had a real th- I have no problem with the blood. I had a problem with the philosophy of it. It just was so jarring to really understand really people in God's scheme of things. What are we waiting? What's going to happen to them? What is the little story? They get all about it. Okay, they do. I don't know. To my mind, Rama says they do not have the rank of men, but have among the beings a rank lower than the rank of men, but higher than the rank of a- apes. They're Almost in that in between, because the Pesukah de which talks about revolution. right, <laughs> he said that, that's gonna be almost so no, but it, it's it's very strange how he says this over here. Right, you want to see the Hebrew again? And we'll compare it and maybe look at the original Arabic if you choose. But he says they have no clue as to God's presence in the world. So they have higher ranks than apes, but lower in the rank of a human being who thinks. A non-Jewish person who thinks and speculates is reached in the, in the right ballpark. These people know. For so they have the external shape and liniments of man, and a faculty of discernment that is superior to that of the apes. So they discern something, so they are superior to apes, but they're not yet really man. And one more topic. <clears throat> Those who I was in the city. Oh, now we're going beyond that but have turned their backs upon the rules of habitation. Right? Are people who have opinions and engage in speculation, but who have e- adopted incorrect opinions. <clears throat> Either because of some great error that befell them in the course of the speculation, or because of their following the traditional authority of one who to error. Speculation that leads to incorrect opinions. They think of Hashem, but they think God is in a place. He's in shul only. Incorrect opinion. They think (coughs) that Hashem has a form. God is physical. Incorrect opinions. They think that God is multiple in some sense. They don't know that God is one. But remember over here the context. Chapter 3, Talks about those people who believe, those Jews who believe God has form. Right? God has form. And in Hadam Abba, the Put in the category of they're heretics. Or, apikosim, one of those two, that have incorrect beliefs. And you add them my body because of the wrong idea. And the Al-Vad in that place says what? How dare he say this? That like being the of people that are greater than him, believe in God's corporeal form, right? Based on how Midrashim and Mishnah Mashim Based on certain Midrashim. People because Midrashim, really, they so God has physical form the Midrash, says God is physical form. So then you went to the external, then you get got to the internal, and they ended up with a physically conceived of God. So Rama puts them out of the Rambam back, just saying over here, if you have the wrong idea, you're not making it in according to the Rambam. Right? Incorrect ideas. Now you speculate, and that's good. But if you have a wrong idea, because of an error in your thinking, or you found somebody who made an error in their thinking, you're out of the palace. Oh, well, you're in the palace, but you'll see a second. Right? So that's a very serious... Earlier, from the point of view of the Rambam. Right? Accordingly, because of their false wrong opinions, and think about now all your friends who has wrong opinions about Hashem, about God, who has the true opinions about it, and who has the wrong opinions about God. Right? Just at over here. The more these people walk, right, or speculate, the greater is their distance from the world's habitation. Why? Because the more they're walking, they're in error. The they're making mistakes. The more they think, the more mistaken they are. They say God's always physical. God has great strength. He looks like Superman. He has big, huge muscles. The more they think, the more they think, the more they're on the wrong track. So they're further in their spiritual distance from the ruler's habitation. And they are far worse, The HaLat Salaam, are far worse than the first category. The first category, the am wasn't too happy with. Right? you are out of the palace. But who's worse? Those who have speculated and have fallen into error. Far worse than the first. They are those concerning whom necessity at certain times impels... Shall could you do the next? I can't do the next. One no They are those concerning whom necessity at certain times impels... Killing them. <laughs> I didn't say it. He said it. Them, killing them and blotting out the traces of their opinions lest they should lead astray the ways of others. Unbelievable. Yeah, very strong. Right, false opinions can lead you astray. So that maybe is the, the, the Qana'ani, maybe it's Amalek, maybe it's... I uh, don't oh know, who's he talking about over here? People that have false opinions about God. It's, 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 it's interesting, you know, what do you do with uh, with Nazis who have false opinions about right and wrong and about what God wants of you? What do you do with these people? They have false opinions. They lead worlds astray. And they cause tremendous damage. So, the Ramam's view, very strong, over here... That's what the mullahs think of Western culture. I'm sorry, that's the That's what the mullahs think of Western culture. That's correct. Yeah, good point. Right. So, what are the talking about over here? The is very tough on these people that are in the habitation, they're in the palace, they have wrong ideas, false speculations, and therefore they're worse in the first category. Because they only still two categories. Okay, next we'll come back to reading the rest of this page, which talks about the other three categories that Bible talks about, and then we'll look at the Hebrew, and then we'll go to three or four other sources for Ronald about these entire issues. Thank you. Have a good day.